Hello, everyone. Jerry Jones here with Jerry Jones Direct and Dentistry Confidential, the business of dentistry audio series. And um, today with me, I have someone who has, frankly, the ability to impact your business and your clinical training more so than probably anyone we've interviewed in a long time, yet from a perspective that you're not going to be expecting. Um, and it's, it's with, um, uh, with some excitement that I introduce to you, uh, Mr. Brian, uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Brian uh, Desrochers. And Dr. Desrochers is with us from Seattle, Washington, and uh, Dr. Brian is a, 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 a highly trained professional um, and has a ton of um, EIEIOs after after his name, as I would call them. Um, he's a, a licensed uh, marriage and family therapist in the state of Washington, as well as um, a PhD. And, and, and Brian, I will let you get into what your PhD is in. Um, and, uh, and I want to say, uh, I want to thank one of our uh, Dentistry Confidential subscribers for uh, recommending we get uh, Dr. Brian on the show today. So um, uh, we're going to spend about the next 45 minutes or so together. And we've got... Um, Really, I had him send me like, you know, what, 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 should, what should we talk about? And he sends me this really great just two-page sheet, and there's so much. The, the two pages are so deep. Um, if you would have sent me eight pages, we could probably do a month-long audio. <laughs> but um, there's, there's a lot of really deep stuff here, and I'm excited to get going into this because it's just an area that, um, like I said earlier, has the ability to impact our, our subscribers in so many facets of their life, not, not clinical, not just business. Um, but also their personal lives as well. <clears throat> you have to forgive me. I'm, I'm battling a bit of a, uh, uh, of a summer um, a throat disturbance here, so I don't know if it's allergies or what, but I'm a little scratchy today. So if my voice completely fails, Dr. Brian, um, give me a moment. I'll take a drink of water, and I'll hop back on. So just in case. No problem. No problem. <clears throat> so, um, Dr. Brian, <clears throat> you've spent 26 years as a psychotherapist, the last 22 to 23 in dentistry working with dentists. And prior yes. to that, you had um, a corporate background uh, as a hospital administrator um, and vice president of a multi-hospital corporation, and that was about a decade-long uh, stint, um, or really a career. A decade is a career; it's not just a stint. Um, so, why don't you um, why don't you just introduce yourself a little bit, tell our listeners um, a little bit about your background, how you became fascinated working with with dentists? I mean, because that seems to be your your big area of, of focus is coaching dentists. Um, on, a, on a very, I think, uh, very unique uh, area. And, man, I'm, like I said, I'm excited to get started. So I'm going to turn it over to you to do a little intro on yourself, Doc, and, um, and then try not to analyze me too much as we go through this. And I'm, and I'm sure everybody says that, you know. Um, but uh, I'm a mess like everybody else. I'm a self-admitted mess. And I told you earlier before we started this conversation that, um, you know, that uh, I'm going to probably need to use your services after we're done. So um, I'll, I'll shut up now and turn it over to you, Dr. Brian, and kind of let you do a little intro, and, and then we'll take off from there. Great. Thank you, Jerry. The first thing that I always like to do when I get an opportunity to speak to dentists is uh, to tell them much I appreciate the opportunity to work in the profession. It, uh, it has been, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, the, the catalyst for uh, my professional growth, beyond a doubt, because dentists are scientists, so it's really been a catalyst for me to, to learn different ways, uh, innovative ways of really looking at the patient relationship, the team relationships, the leadership process, and probably one of the more complex, I believe, one of the most complex uh, organizations on the planet, and that's a dental practice. Um, similar to families and churches, dental practices are very emotionally complex environments. So I have had the opportunity working with the dental profession 22 years now, done a lot of workshops around the country from the California Dental Association, the Greater New York, to the AAE, just 
I mean, it's been wonderful. Many study clubs, Seattle study clubs, um, focusing specifically on the second level of a dental practice. There, I, I liken it to two levels. Level one, that which is very measurable, very concrete, very objective, the practice management, the essential practice infrastructure, uh, marketing, communication that, uh, that a practice needs. Very, very, I mean, very important, very essential. I'm not an expert in practice management. My primary focus is on the emotional process, that is, what we can't see but we know exists, that internal subjective emotional system which is really the source uh, and the heart of motivation and movement that we experience as individuals. And so that's where my focus has been, particularly applying what I call 21st century neuroscience and psychoneurobiology skills of engagement, communication, influence based on those sciences. Um, and that's been, I tell you, that's been a wonderful experience for me. It's helped me in my own private practice uh, and also in coaching. So it's been a catalyst for growth uh, working with this dental profession. Well, um, you mentioned two levels, um, and your mm -hmm. focus is on the second level. Um, yeah. Level one is sort of the, the, is the area that the industry really sort of focuses on. I mean, you got practice management people running around um, right. pretty much all saying right. the same stuff. I mean, let's be honest. Um, you know, uh, they have little different variations on little different twists, but they're all pretty much, you know, saying the same thing. And they're all pretty much, uh, i got to tell you, they all kind of have their root back in the early, uh, early 1900s uh, from Brother Bill and uh, George, uh, George Clapp, Dr. George Clapp. Um, he wrote one of the earliest books on practice management that we can find, and it's dated back to, you know, early 1900s. Most wow, dentists, by the way, that. have never heard of George Clapp, um, and they've never heard of another gentleman that we're going to talk about, uh, which is um, Bob Barkley. Um, but, uh, yes. you know, most of these folks are saying the same things, level one, level one, level one. And here you come along and say, hey, guys, there's more to dentistry than level one. And yeah. I, I would be – I'd venture to say that probably less than 1% of the industry ever reaches level two because level one is so damn difficult. I mean, it is so difficult. And you said something earlier that I'd never heard anybody actually say it before, but after owning a dental office for 14 years, I mm -hmm. would concur. A dental office, mm -hmm. a dental practice. I have to call it an office because I'm not a dentist and I can't own a practice sure. in the state of work. I can own sure. an office. But, sure. um, mm -hmm. but a dental practice is one of the most complex living organisms and doing some of the craziest stuff ever. And it is a, it is a damn hard thing to operate. Um, it, is. It's, it is. It's just, I mean, it is. I'm here to tell you, I've owned them, and they are difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So most people get stuck at level one, and then you're saying, hey, there's level two, which – which has this, it, it's almost like um, the invisible, it's the invisible stuff that allows you to finally appreciate level one, you know, because money and quote unquote success comes with mastering level one. But I think level two comes, I, I think that's probably more, I haven't experienced it. <laughs> I'll just be honest. Uh, level two sounds like it's more like, okay, I'm at peace with this. I enjoy it. I get joy from being part of this and I've mastered level one, and now I'm going to work on internal stuff level two. Am I even remotely close? Mm -hmm. You know, you're getting there. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah. if, 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 for example, you know, uh, working with a patient, and you're, you've done a case consultation, and you want to do a case presentation, let's say. That's an emotional process. Yes, it does definitely involve a treatment plan and ideas and communication, 
but it's predominantly an emotional process that's happening. How do you get the patient to think about and then move towards taking action on the treatment that they need? And that emotional process is directly related to how their brain functions and how I communicate with that brain. Um, and understanding some of the principles there, that's level two. Motivation is level two. You, nobody sees motivation. We see action, but we don't see the emotional process that we call motivation. Mo motivation from the Latin motivere, meaning to stir up. So how do you stir people up in a positive way, not only building the relationship, but also having them move, move towards optimal dental health and care? That's an emotional process. That's level two, right? Gotcha. Um, you sent me a quote here of Bob Barclay's. Um, it's from 1972. Mm -hmm. for, for those that don't know who Bob Barclay is, um, 1977, he was in a, a small plane crash um, and passed away at yeah. age 46. Um, yeah. a, a pioneer in a number of areas in dentistry. Um, I'd, I'd suggest people go online and just do a search for Bob Barclay DDS, and you're going to find out a lot about Bob. But one of his quotes here, you really, um, I mean, you really kind of tied it all really nicely together in a nice package. He said, uh, the quote is that you sent to me, it says, it follows that dentists who, for the most part, avoid explanations in favor of helping patients to think clearly are more likely to influence their behavior. In yes. other words, well, I'll let you explain that. I mean, what does that say to you? What, what well, wisdom did Bob and Dr. Bob impart on us with that? You know, uh, explanations, they're, they're, I, I like it, uh, it, there's five dimensions of patient communication. I find it in my own private practice, in my coaching, but also uh, with, with dental patients. That's the informing, the directing, the guiding, the relating and listening. Those are the five dominant forms of uh, patient uh, communication. The focus predominantly for many dentists is explanation and that's informing and directing, not guiding, some relating, some listening. But this explanations, the assumption is if I, I, I hear it from many dentists, that if you explain it to people, they'll get it and they'll follow through. On the contrary, all of us have had the experience, I think, of talking with someone and you look in their eyes and you know they're not there. They're gone. <laughs> yeah. and, but you keep talking, yeah. hoping right. that they it. Maybe if I say it a different way. <laughs> you know, exactly. <laughs> or I'll repeat and, it nine times. <laughs> and, and so what oftentimes happens is information sharing and explanation and this is what you should do is done, but the dentist does not have that brain's permission yet to provide that information. And so you get a brain that checks out. Yeah. It doesn't register. And when that happens, the probability of influencing the patient's behavior significantly declines. If anything, they'll pull away or they'll appoint and then they'll, they'll cancel. <laughs> All kinds of things. That, that informing and directing that process is dominant and the least effective form of communication to get people, patients to think and to act. Well, this and is, that's what Parkley was saying. This is, um, this is really interesting to me because this, this comes down to not just um, working with patients uh, or guests, as we call them at my office, to um, to find for themselves and identify for themselves what their challenges are and what they ought, ought to do about their challenges. But 
this more deeply affects uh, or as deeply affects the people that you work with on a daily basis who you're trying to get to make coffee every morning yep. or take out the trash or in, you know yep. insert anything right um whatever exactly. it is and we keep yep. saying to the same people every week until we fire them um i need you to do this task it needs to be done on this mm-hmm. day and every week we go back on that day after it's supposed to be done did you get this done no well I mean, do you keep yeah. saying the same thing? Is the person not understanding? Do they not understand the importance? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, something that simple, right? I mean, this is the same. This is under getting this piece helps with that the as same, well, right? Yep, it's fundamentally the same process. And you know, when when you look at that, is what is my intent in communicating, and am I creating and having the impact I want to have? Most of us tend to blame the listener for not listening as opposed to taking a look at, am I clear in my intent? What do I want to communicate? Instead of focusing on the other person, how do I communicate it? How do I manage my state in a way that I'm communicating clearly and succinctly the outcomes that I want? And if I'm not creating them, then I need to look at how I'm communicating as opposed to blame the listener, which is never, blaming someone has never, seems to not have worked very well in the history of mankind, but we continue to do it. And our politicians are supreme blamers, yeah. aren't they? they yeah. just, you know, yeah. it just doesn't work. So yeah. That's not a political statement. It's just the statement of the human condition. So right, exactly. They, um, it, it's the most visible example of that, right, that we see every day. We do. Yeah. If, if I want to involve a patient in my own patients in, in, in influencing them positive, that is enabling them to move towards what they want, and helping to see and understand it, I have to invite their brain and stimulate their brain to think with me about the outcomes they want to create. And because thinking is a frontal cortex thing, how do I facilitate people thinking and creating outcomes of a future, particularly in the dental profession, oftentimes people are pretty anxious. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, you know. In, in almost you know almost any patient uh, is going to be anxious have some level of it whether they're cognizant of it or not it's it's there right exactly exactly it precisely um, and, and we, so oh, go, go ahead, ahead. I, I'm sorry I didn't mean to interrupt go ahead and so you know when it gets down to it how do you deal with that anxiety natural inherent anxiety in all relationships particularly in complex systems like a dental practice how does the individual dentist manage that anxiety in such a way as to, one, create an extraordinary dental team, but two, have patients reduce their anxiety, but secondly, manage, um, if I'm the dentist, I want to manage my anxiety in such a way that it doesn't drain me, I don't lose vitality, and also I'm able to positively influence the patient to move in the direction of optimal dental health. What do you find are some of the um, most common barriers uh, that that you um, that you hear of uh, doctors having. I mean, because I'm, I'm sure there's probably maybe just the top one or two um, barriers that 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 are in front of them um, that are keeping them from you know moving in the right direction to to get to this level too. There, there's two the two predominant patterns that I have seen. Maybe three, but I'll I'll go with two. Um, one is the avoidance pattern. You know, any of us in a negative state, anxiety or frustration, but let's talk anxiety particularly, uh, are predominant because anxiety is the real or 
the, the perceived threat of something. Most patients aren't threatening to us. Most employees, they don't, there's no threat, but we still experience anxiety. The avoidance of anxiety, particularly the avoidance of clarity and taking clear positions is one of the fundamental things that gets in the way. I have, boy, I've got, like, may I tell you an example of that? Oh, please, yes. Okay. So I got a call about two months ago from a dentist uh, in one of the southern states, and he called me and said he had, but he'd been working with a head associate. He bought the practice. He had been in the practice for about 14 years, and he, brought, he bought the practice. That's about seven years into it. And, the, uh, and there was an associate with him in the practice. He kept the associate when he brought the practice. Uh, however, and I'll call him Jason, he worked with the associate, and now he's noticed over the past four or five years that the quality of the work that the associate was doing was declining but he was pushing to do more complex cases to generate more revenue. That conflict created a real conflict for him. So he started, you know, kind of hinting, kind of suggesting, kind of saying, let's go to lunch and talk about this. Why don't you come to my study club? All the indirect ways that we avoid the anxiety of clarity. His intent was to get this associate to see what was going on, but he didn't want to hurt his feelings, didn't want to be judgmental, didn't, you know, he wanted to be a nice guy. Well, the impact of that was he was very frustrated. Things were getting worse. He called me. What I suggested to him was stop focusing on the associate. Focusing on, focus on what you want to communicate, what you want him to understand about your values, particularly the value of competence, and take responsibility for the fact that you have not communicated well how important competence is because if you had, he would be doing differently. The associate would be doing differently, would be taking courses, he would understand how important it is. So we focused on that, very self-referential rather than other referential communication. A couple other things he did, and, and including managed his anxiety, they had one meeting and it completely changed everything. Because he wasn't trying to make something happen, he was presenting information in a very clear, concise, non-anxious way so that the associate could make some choices about what he wanted. Turned out very, he didn't want to lose the associate, but it turned out to be very positive for both of them. The avoidance pattern of what he's been doing most of the time to manage his anxiety. And the same thing happens with team members. I mean, we've all heard stories of dentists, I certainly have, who have kept team members on years longer than they should be. Mm-hmm. because of the emotionality involved in the process. Yep. Not, not only hurts the employee and the dentist, it affects the atmosphere of the practice. Yep. So the, how we communicate, how we manage our anxiety. <clears throat> I, I tell dentists that a, uh, a diet, that is one person talking to another, if one of those people is in a, a negative state disappointment, frustration, anxiety, or shame, then it becomes an unstable dyad because emotions transfer. They're highly contagious, particularly negative emotions are very contagious. So you get an unstable dyad at that point in time. And that makes communication much more difficult, much more difficult. So is it, um, so with the layman's, 
uh, I'm, I'm trying to maybe interpret this for sure. for, for the for a layman. Um, would you say that uh, um, focus on an indiv- focus on the outcome as opposed to the individual and relay focus what on that the outcome? outcome? Yes, but focus on the outcome you want for yourself. For yourself, not for the individual, for but for yourself or for the practice. Exactly. Right. Which, yeah. Or, or for the practice. Okay. That's very important because if you focus on the individual, am I, you know, if, if right now in our conversation, Jerry, I am focusing on, okay, how do I want to experience myself in this? How at the end of this do I want to think about myself? How do I want to feel about myself? If I started focusing on what you think about me or what your listeners think about me, then I'm not going to be paying attention to how effectively and what I want to communicate. And it's the same thing in all our relationships. I can try to focus on you, but when I do that, I lose track of myself, number one. And number two, you, what you do now influences me more than I want. And we all tend to focus on others. And, and that does not optimize our influence at all, at all. Okay. Um, how would, uh, in the same in the same vein, um, mm-hmm. and let, mm-hmm. let's say we instead of having an associate who uh, is not performing at the level we would like, whether it's a quality, whether it's um, communication with patients, whatever it might be, uh, yeah. and instead we have um, uh, we have a patient who um, has a moderate dental IQ. In other words. Mm-hmm. They've been going to the dentist for for a long period of time, but they haven't had a lot of work done. Um, they've been mm-hmm. going to a dentist for let's say you know ten years, which I don't mm-hmm. think is at all uncommon for adults. I mean, most adults who go to the dentist have been going for some for some time. They consider it part of their health and wellness mm-hmm. program. Um, yes, part of their health care. Um, moving that patient from uh, you know from not understanding the value of a procedure to to getting them to understand the value of a procedure, perhaps it's mm-hmm. an implant. Perhaps you know, perhaps it's it's getting them out of dentures and getting them into implants. Uh, yeah. yeah. What sort of process? What is what does that look like in, along the same vein that you just described? Um, along that same process, what does that look like? Well, the, the first thing is in that case is that what I would want, being the dentist, is I want to reduce the probability that my anxiety and trying to communicate it well is low. So I want to be as non-anxious as possible, which means I'm very clear about the outcomes that I want for myself and for the patient. That'd be first. Secondly, if I did an examination and I want to present it, then I would be using I-based statements. I would be using thinking statements. I would avoid I feel that statements. Because uh, I want to stimulate that frontal cortex with the thinking and the, the thoughts, ideas, and where we project into the future. I want to I want to keep that stimulated. I would also ask for permission. I would literally ask the patient, and I do, and I I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from dentists. You know, I'm going to example. I might say I'm going to complete this exam, and as I go through it, I would like your permission to share my findings. And if you have any questions, please ask. The vast majority of patients are going to say yes, but when they say yes, you have now primed the brain to be open and receptive. Sure. The first yes leads to multiple yeses. You, you, so you want to get the permission of the brain to say, 
Yes, and once you get that permission, then you can proceed in a very thoughtful way with observations, implications, and a request using curiosity. Curiosity from the Latin word curiosos means to care for. To care for, to demonstrate curiosity, not the why word. The why does not work. But what are your thoughts about that? This is oftentimes what people experience. Dentists have learned a lot. Curiosity is such a valuable skill, and it really helps to prime the brain for change. So that curiosity, as opposed to saying, explaining this is what it is and this is what you need, that, that in the short term may work, but it's only in the short term. You've got to engage that brain and create that sense of safeness by using I think statement, these are my observations, tell me your thought, this is, these are my thoughts on this, this is what I would recommend, these are the implications. Once again, presenting facts with permission granted to begin with. It's very respectful. Uh, secondly is to use your positive state, because when I'm in a positive state communicating with someone, the probability that they're going to be in a neutral or positive state is very high. If I'm in a negative state because of the contagious nature of emotions, the probability that the patient or whoever I'm talking to is going to be in a negative state is very high. I want to put the probabilities on my side sure. of being able to motivate, motivate, move uh, a patient in the direction of optimal dental health at that point in time. And if they say no, if I end up taking that personally and it bothers me for 48 hours, then I need to take a look at that because that's stressful to the other areas of my life. And it really affects me at that point in time. I've worked with many, many dentists who place so much emphasis, understandably, on the case consultation and the presentation uh, that if it doesn't work out immediately, they get very disgruntled, very almost situational depressed. Yes. And become very hard on themselves as opposed to this is a long-run operation. You're looking at the long-term here for many patients, you know, and so taking that perspective allows some grace, some peacefulness, and some openness to this very human process of communication and decision-making at that point in time. Right. Um, I want to back up a little bit. Um, <clears throat> you've, you've used some words that are um, they're big words. Um, and uh, I know we've got a very sophisticated audience. We've got folks, all, all of our listeners, maybe with the exception of one or two, have, uh, you know, have their, uh, their doctorates. Um, so some of these words may not be big words to them, but it's a big word to me. Um, psych- and, and I guess what I'm looking for is, uh, an anal- you know, tell me what these words mean um, before we go too much further, because I want to make sure that our, that our listeners understand um, the full depth of what we're discussing here. This isn't um, this isn't manipulation. This isn't uh, what's the what's the uh, really common term I'm thinking about. Right? Um, of course, you can't read my mind, but uh, there's a there's a popular term for uh, you know for um, manipulating people, um, and I'm, it's not going to come. You mean to persuasion? Me. Not persuasion. Um, it's a mm-hmm. it's a it's a term you, that's used in. Um, in sales training, and um, I just am totally embarrassed. I can't remember the name of it. Um, it'll come to me at some point. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I want our listeners to understand that this isn't this isn't like a a tactic. This is this is um, 
this is something that oh. works at a, at a very visceral level. I mean, because you're, like yeah. you said, you're tapping into uh, yeah. the psychology of people, not not the yeah. demographics, you know, of, right. of people. So can you can, right. you, can you explain yeah. what psychoneurobiology means? Because you've used you that you. in, in, a couple of, you. in a couple of areas. You betcha. Uh, uh, and I'm going to differentiate the mind from the brain, from the body, although they're, they, I mean, you see, they, once again, they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, they seem like they are, but they're not. They're very together. Psychoneurobiology has to do with the mind-brain-body relationship. So the mind can redirect the brain. The mind can, do, can change, literally change the brain. The brain is an organ. It's an instrument, but the mind can change it. So when I'm talking about psychoneurobiology, I'm talking about how do I communicate in such a way that I'm using my mind to manage myself and influencing the mind but the brain of the person I'm talking with so that they have an experience of themselves with me that encourages openness. Their mind can then get pictures, can look at the because it's the mind that directs us to doing things. If I am, if many patients come, for example, with negative memory. I certainly had many negative memories of dentistry from my childhood that kept me away and, and cost me in terms of my dental health. It was, it was not very good. Throughout my 20s, I just avoided dentists, even though it was not a very good thing to do. Because every time I went, I would have a negative experience of I'd get anxious based on my memories in my childhood of being a dentist. And, you know, we all have that to some degree, that the, the capacity to take that, use that mind of the patient and redirect it toward the positive differences they want to create when they're still used to focusing on the negatives, that not only changes their brain, it changes their body. It changes what's happening in their nervous system and actually creates a different set of memories that are then very positive. Um, so I, I, you know, in terms of dentistry, we're all working, all of us work with memories, but particularly in dentistry, the creation of positive memories, not the avoidance of negatives, but the creation of positives, positive images, positive future, fundamentally key to moving people into a positive way. That's the psychoneurobio, the mind, brain, body part. And communicating is focused on that whole process. How do you change the whole experience that the patient's had? There's a, there's, there, the, the ability to do that is really there. Neuroscience, 21st century psychobiology and neuroscience is very clear about our ability to be able to positively influence others without applying pressure. Because, you know, Newton's third law of motion, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. If I pressure you to do something, you may comply temporarily, but you don't commit to anything. In other words, there's going to be a pushback or a withdrawal. And if we just have to look at our personal relationships, if we have children, to take a look at that. Children any, under the age of 50, let's put it that way. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, um, it, this is a way of optimizing your influence for the mutual prosperity that's a mutual well-being of both the patient or the team member and the dentist. So both get to benefit from this process. This is a very different okay. way of thinking that most of us have been taught. Yeah. Um, 
<clears throat> it certainly is. It's uh, it's very uh, it's going to be very foreign to a lot of folks. Um, does this extend into which I think I know the answer? Uh, does this extend into marketing? Oh, does it ever? Yeah, very much so, because you know, the creativity in marketing. Marketing is so essential. How one differentiates one's practice in marketing is, especially in this day and age, is so important. But then once the patient comes in, how do you continue the marketing process by differentiating what happens in the practice with the patient from what they experience in other healthcare environments, in other situations? In other words, how do I call it, how do they go from huh to aha to ah? Three different states. How do you move the patient in that direction. And so that differentiation is not only the marketing differentiation, the message, it's also the internal process of differentiation once they arrive. Well, can, we, can we talk about the message for a moment? Because this is an area sure. that, um, that really is uh, um, really an area that uh, I really enjoy. Um, uh, I'll give you an example. I'm, I'm, when you started to talk about this particular thread that we're on here, um, I began to think, okay, well, if it affects case presentation and if it can affect personal relationships, it ought yep. well affect the introduction of relationships. In other words, the beginning of relationships, how they, how they begin, um, mm-hmm. what, what sort of, um, what sort mm-hmm. of things are, are either read by a prospective patient or thought mm-hmm. by a prospective patient. Um, and I want to give you an example uh, in nearly sure. every one of the ads that we run, and by the way, my company, Jerry Jones Direct, we do predominantly uh, old-school marketing. Uh, today it's called offline marketing. You know, there's digital marketing, which is online, which right. is Google, yep. Facebook, you know, all that stuff. And then there's offline stuff, which is direct mail, mm-hmm. newspapers, direct you know, mail. You traditional stuff. Yeah, you you. yeah we the do. Kind of touch. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah, it's not air. We're not selling, you know, uh, ether. Right. Um, it's actually, you know, a piece of paper with ink on it. And um, mm-hmm. there are a number of things that we do um, to stimulate w- what we find are higher response rates than what a traditional yeah. dental marketing company might do. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they all have the same ability we do to to experiment. It's just we chose to really experiment in a, in a, in a wildly different way. But I. Um, a couple of years ago, well, this has probably been 10 years ago now, we went back and started studying some really old um, uh, materials on advertising. Uh, and I don't mm-hmm. mean from the 50s. I mean from the 20s and the, and the early teens and the 30s and 40s. Um, and we, we looked at what were psychologists and those who were testing. I mean, this was sort of in the infancy of psychology even. Um, they were learning what colors stimulated what responses. They were learning yeah. what yeah. shapes stimulated what kinds of responses. Um, right. They were learning what phrases triggered. You know, so I mean, would that sort of be the infancy of neuropsychobiology? Or it, 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 that's very interesting. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it would be. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's a so, great observation. Yeah, the right hemisphere, particularly the right hemisphire. Well, so. Yeah. Um, and as an example, uh, before I get into where we went with this, I'll, I'll tell you what the results are. So we will get a – and today, you know, we might be working with a startup dental office. So we're working with someone who's younger, 
you know, under the age of 30, typically, um, they have a limited mm-hmm. view of the world just based on age and experiences, as opposed to your view and my view. Your view is different than mine, and mine is, you know, of a, of a shorter time frame than perhaps yours and some of my other mem- clients. But uh, some of the things we do, they don't understand. They don't have a frame of reference for. And so right. we have to show them through testing why we do what we do. And, um, yeah. and we will take yeah. a very modern design, something that looks like it is in your mailbox every day, something that's full mm-hmm. color, it's got happy, smiling people on it, and typically it's the same stupid stock photographs that every company uses. Um, and, and we'll take that postcard, uh, that piece of direct mm-hmm. mail, and then we'll test it with something that we do, which is right. you know, 180 right. degrees polar opposite. And mm-hmm. we use mm-hmm. call tracking numbers, and the call tracking numbers tell you how many people call and how many people appoint. Um, typically, well, nine times out of ten, what we do wins, and it doesn't win just by a little bit. It wins by a lot. There's a there's a big difference. Um, initially, I didn't really know what to chalk this up to other than, well, it's different, and I refer to it as a pattern interrupt. In other words, mm-hmm. you see the mm-hmm. same thing every day. Pretty soon you no longer see it, and I think about the drive home from work. You know, right. you don't see all the – you know, you just you start ignoring everything. Your mind just sh- shuts it off. It's not important anymore. It's part of a pattern. And so when we show up in the mailbox, we typically are a pattern interrupt. Um, and as an example, today, in today's mail, I have a giant 12-inch by 12-inch postcard being sent in the mail today. That is a pattern interrupt. Everything is 5.5 by 8.5, right? All postcards are or maybe 6 by 9 or 6 by 11. Exactly. Yeah. So this 12 by 12 mm-hmm. on its own is a pattern interrupt. But um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not only is the, 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 the size, but oftentimes the design, the layout, the pictures – um, some of our ads do not use modern-day photos. They use sketch art from the 50s. Um, Wonderful. And we have a very uh, – we have a set – I call them blocks of copy. Um, one of the blocks of copy uh, – you'll love this. Um, it says here, um, uh, no funny stuff, no fake trickery. We kind of made – we took that from an old commercial. Just old-fashioned mm-hmm. exceptional, exceptional service in a very comfortable, warm environment. What's more, you're in control. You're in the driver's seat, always. And if you're a white-knuckle flyer, you'll discover that you can actually relax and not worry about a thing here. You'll be in the best <laughs> care. This last one, I think you'll really like. This last sentence I'm going to read to you. Don't worry. Maybe you've had some unpleasant memories from visiting the dentist. Well, we can't erase them, but we can replace them with better, even pleasant memories when you visit us. So there, there's a lot of I love the last one. That's right? great. There's a lot of that that you're talking about going on in here. It's planting right. seeds and creating right. thought as opposed to, right. oh, it's a $39 new patient exam. My kids need new, my, my kids need a dental exam. Let's go. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if you look at the design, it's black and white, and it looks like it literally fell out of a, you know, 1951 mailbox. Well, what you're calling a pattern interrupt is what the brain focuses on. The brain looks for differences. It gets attracted to differences. So if you want something to stand out and you use the plain old stock pictures, uh, uh, all that kind of stuff, it, it doesn't stand out. It doesn't, it, it, it's like, yeah, been there, seen that, been there, seen that. Boom. As soon as you show an anomaly to the brain, it gets fascinated by it. It doesn't fit. It's a, you know, it's a pattern interrupt, as you call it. And pattern interrupts are probably the most important process to attract people's attention to get them to stretch out towards is to do a pattern interrupt because at that point and we've all experienced this you know in our life 
is when we're used to things, all of a sudden there's a difference. We remember it. Yeah. You know, we just went, oh, wow. And we remember it. It's a kind of an anomaly. The brain remembers it because it's different from everything, all the other stuff that you see. And pattern interrupts in relationships are the same thing. A little pattern interrupt. You know, I, dentists oftentimes report this. They'll start using more eye-based, I think, this is my observation, communication with their team members. They'll, and then all of a sudden it's a pattern interrupt, and he's getting a lot more people are now paying attention. They might be uncomfortable with the pattern interrupt in terms of communication, but they're, they're aware. It isn't the same old stuff. It's the same thing you're doing here, Jerry, is you're creating what you're calling, I think it's a good term, it's a pattern interrupt. The brain looks for differences. And when it finds a difference, boom, what is that? Boom, what is that? It's like having a, a new dish, you know, and all of a sudden you taste something and, boy, there's a spice in there. What is that? Oh, wow. It's, you get curious. The brain wants to know. And that's the nature of the brain, and that's what you're basically doing. So it's very similar to when, uh, when a dentist yeah. asks a patient, um, uh, Mary, I'd like to get your permission to um, share with you what I find throughout my yeah. exam. Does that sound yeah. good to you? So that's a pattern interrupt as opposed to I'm going to shove this down your throat and you're just going to listen and sit there and shut up, and I'm, I'm going to show you how smart I am. I'm going to show you how much and how smart I am. It's better. That's what Barkley was saying. Relax, help people think, influence them. Don't give explanations right away. I mean, that's pretty good neuroscience right there, and he wasn't writing a neuroscience book, but his book is great in terms of that. And it's equally applicable, as you said, in many other relationships. But it's the differences. It's the differences that attracts the brain. No differences, no motivation. It's pure and simple. If, I, if, if, if a patient can't see a difference between what is and what they want, they can't see that difference, there's no motivation. There's no movement. It will not happen. It's the same with us in our lives. No difference, no motivation. You've got to be able to see or sense here and there. And there is, is the future. And so it's being able to measure and communicate and draw, if you will, a picture of that difference. And by using the, ad, the, the material that you're using, you're, it's a distinction. You're drawing a distinction. And the brain loves distinction. Once again, it's just like, mm, wow, 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 what is that? What is that? But you don't know the brain's doing it because it, it operates somewhat, you know, it's a fascinating, fascinating organ. And so you want to introduce these kinds of things in a way that arouses that curiosity. Hmm, what is that? Hmm. Um, uh, you talked a little bit about the avoidance pattern. Let's, let's shift gears because, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think that um, what you just said, by the way, really sort of um, validates what we have demonstrated time and time again through testing. Um, yeah. One yeah. test after really? another after yeah. another. Um, what else yep. is interesting that I, I didn't mention is that uh, we, we often listen to the phone calls that come, come in. We have call tracking, like I mentioned, and, and we will listen to mm -hmm. what, what are people saying when they call from yeah. this particular postcard. And right. we hear some of the craziest conversations you can possibly imagine where it, it, isn't, an, it isn't a, a typical, I have a toothache, I need to make an appointment. It's right. this really cool piece of mail from you today. Yeah, yeah. Or this this postcard is amazing. 
Um, yeah. That's the kind of th- those are the kinds of things we hear, and and yeah. it isn't that it's an amazing piece of art because I got to tell you I've I have um, four graphic designers, and I know cool. every day they cringe <laughs> at saying, oh another black and white project, um, <laughs> because they're trained to design in beautiful color and you know and and here we've got to do this. Yeah. You know, courier yeah. font type as opposed to some beautiful modern font type, and I'm telling them to use a typewriter font. Um, but anyway, it, it validates mm-hmm. uh, really through science what what we've found to be true through testing. So, um, yeah. yeah, you you talked about uh, um, optimizing your influence, anxiety, and optimizing your influence, and right. how that anxiety is a a real negative emotion and it's very contagious. Uh, in our in our pre conversation, the one we had before we started this, um, I mentioned it's it's kind of like when a doctor uh, does not recognize and his team does not recognize that um, that they are part of a production. And what I mean by production, I mean mm-hmm. like a play, mm-hmm. like an like an act. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And when they show up ill prepared mm-hmm. to act, they haven't rehearsed their lines mm-hmm. or their state is not appropriate to act. Right. The whole day right. goes in the tank, and it can only and it only takes really one team member, one employee. Mm-hmm. Right yep. to show up without acting. Um, exactly. How do we overcome? How how do we address that? Is that through through this process? How can we address that that yeah. failure of the day? I mean that that you know how, how do we take that person and lift them up, or how do we take that person and like I told my daughters this morning, as we were driving to the dental office for one of my kids' appointments. I said yeah. that cat is, is has has had a lot of pressure on it. It's flat. <laughs> the cat in the middle of the road. Um, yeah. <laughs> how do we, you know, because we don't want to steamroll them. We don't want to press them flat like a cat on the road. We want to lift them up. But how do we do that effectively? Or is that even possible? Am I asking too much? No, that's a that's a that's a great question. I mean, I mean so um, what, no, you're you're not. And this really goes to, in many ways, the practice leadership process. Um, as an emotional process. Um, and management and leadership in dental practice, there's, it's very fuzzy lines. They're very fuzzy. Um, I think it's more leadership than it is management in many ways uh, in that respect. Uh, I call it creating the extraordinary dental team. How do you do that? Well, language is really important. You probably have noticed, Jerry, that many times the dental team will talk about, well, we this, and the dentist will say, well, we this, and we this. And, you know, we, less like the purpose of marketing is to differentiate the practice. In the practice, relationships need to be differentiated. And so I encourage people, get rid of the we-ness and start focusing on the I-ness, because when it really gets down to it, we is the big hideout for your responsibility. Yeah, it's the big corporate, it's government, it's yeah, you know, somebody it's you can't it's point to and blame. <laughs> yeah, it's the big we. So I, folk, I encourage people to use eye-based thinking, communicate your thinking and your observations, um, be aware of that, the, when you saw when we prepared to talk about it, the responsibility dilemma. In other words, emotionally, I may feel responsible for you, and all of us have had people in our lives we feel responsible for, and there's no reason for us to be responsible for them. My son is 26. I am not responsible for him. I am responsible to him. I am not responsible for my clients. I am responsible to my clients, to be my competent, clear, communicative self. But I'm not responsible for their choices. But I am responsible to them. And differentiating a dentist 
is not responsible for the emotional welfare of his team members, but he is responsible to them to be clear in communication and to ensure that they understand the values that inform that unique practice. I have worked with so many practices that do not have a clearly defined set of values or some that have a three-page statement of values. A clearly stated value statement, three to six values, clearly defined, no more than eight to ten words per value. If it gets more than that, then you're, you're doing godmotherhood and apple pie stuff. <laughs> Could you, you give us you some know? examples of, of a couple of values that, that you've heard communicated? In, in your work? Yeah, yeah let, I, I, I sure can. I was, I was thinking about that because um, many of the practices, the first thing I do when I'm coaching a practice is I want to see your values, and the vast majority of practices don't have a clear state of values, or they have one that is like they got off the Internet or something like this. Sure, yeah, Bob you've already seen it. <laughs> yeah, it's like boring, you know. Come on, it's like you're creating unique marketing material, that differentiates and it motivates, it, 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 kind of, it kind of stimulates the brain. Having a clear, let's say for example, not unusual for practice to say, well, it, excellence is important, or respect, or trust, or confidence, or caring. And yet, I will tell you, when I work with, and I probably work with 50 practices in defining those, we could take the word respect and it means a different thing in every practice as defined by the dentist. In other words, what are these values and what do they mean? Short term, you know, no more than three to six. If you get more than that, once again, you're, it's kind of like it's, it's, lost its, it's lost its heart. It's lost its energy. And so clearly defined set of values gives you a lot of leverage to be able to create responsible, because then you have somebody to talk about. If somebody's not functioning at that level, you can refer to the values just as a dentist refers to a treatment plan. It's what I call the tripod of effective communication. And you, you create a third leg. Nobody has ever seen a, a, a tripod with two legs. They don't stand up. Well, when you create a third leg of value statement, it allows the dentist to be a have conversation, say with team members, about those values and how they are focusing on those and when they're not. It takes a lot of the emotionality out and creates a focus at that point in time. And right. that's what that's 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 one of the key leadership principles. Um, to avoid the weakness. And so would you focus say in my office, we have a, every interview, and I just interviewed somebody today um, for a front office position. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm interviewing another person tonight, later after this call is wrapped up. Um, one of the things I always communicate to them, uh, some, sometimes they will ask, well, what is, what is the philosophy of the business? You know, what do you guys mm -hmm. stand mm -hmm. for? And yeah, yeah. No matter what their question is or what are your values here, um, mm -hmm. Besides our no drama policy, which you know, I mean that's that should be everybody's policy because it, it doesn't have any place in the dental office. But by golly, there's sure a lot of it. I think some of the best reality shows, by the way, would be shot in a dental office. Um, <laughs> you probably agree. Um, I always I always share one thing with them, um, and 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 I I let them know I have one major of success and only one major of success, 
and if we and and if we hit it, I will celebrate every day with you. That measure of success huh. is is when our guest is leaving. Number one, will they return? Will they refer? Yeah. And will they yeah. tell everybody they know what a great place we are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the only yeah. measure of success that I have in that business. Because if we don't have that when they leave, nothing else we've done means anything at all. It's 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 about relationship. From the word relatio, meaning to connect, it's about relationship. Is what you're saying, Jerry. And yes, I mean you have to have a relationship with patients in order to do the work. The question is, how do you create that? You know, um, what you're saying, what I'm hearing you talk about is, how do we focus on the positive, creating the positive outcome for the patients that will move them in the direction that their experience, the outcome of what they go through, and the word experience is a beautiful word, it's internal. The outcome, the internal outcome of what they go through. And I will tell you, the most important, and plenty of research on this, the most important experience that a patient can have that will bring them back is the experience of significance. To be seen, to be heard, to be understood, to be acknowledged, to matter. Particularly in our anxious society today, where most of us don't experience because we spend most of the time on our phones, not engaging, you know, face to face, but engaging through phones. The experience of significance is the most powerful experience. That's listening to people, seeing them, acknowledging their frustrations, acknowledging what they want differently, engaging them in a neurophysiological way so that they feel safeness. Safeness. Safeness happens by being face-to-face, eye-to-eye, and very open. The vagal system, it's called polyvagal theory, the vagal system actually at that time relaxes and the patient experiences safeness so they can hear better. But that process, very few people are aware of that, and it's the power of that process. And it's what you're saying is you want the patient to walk away like that. They want to, if they feel, if they experience themselves as being seen, heard, and understood, they'll come back. They'll come back. They feel relevant. Let me read you you a couple of examples of uh, of example of of, uh, a, these are, these are, some examples of values to me. Here's a, a, a value uh, that one office has. Uh, respect. We share a basic regard for one another. Trust. We place reliance upon others to complete their responsibilities. Now, isn't that awesome? That right there is a statement of this is what we value. When you're here, you are individually responsible for completing your task because we all depend on you. So now you're talking about a value has the focus and not the person. And that enables the brain to focus much more effectively. You know, here's another one, trust. We rely on each other to complete our responsibilities in a timely and precise manner. I will tell you, I've seen the value trust written in practically 90% of the value statements I work with with practices, not one of them is the same. Because everybody's unique, and it's important that that be so clarified. I mean, it be written, and it be written. 
that, you know, your, your, what you're saying is one of the things you value in your practice is that people experience their significance. Right, right. And, and it may be the only place that they actually experience it. Yeah. That's the thing that's important. Well, Brian, we're we're wrapping up here. We're 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 at the end of our hour. It went very quickly. Um, it went longer than than I than I thought. And I know you have uh, additional um, uh, uh, commitments this afternoon. Um, yeah. I don't want to keep you too long. Um, this has been a fascinating uh, fascinating discussion. And my Thank hope you. is that our members um, literally spend time to think about what you're saying. And, and how this could impact their practice, their personal life, mm-hmm. their uh, their basic human interactions that they have on a daily basis, how they can better communicate with their team. Um, communication is such a flashy word, but by golly, communication is everything. It, you know, how we communicate determines um, really, it's kind of like the questions determine your wealth um, in so many facets of, of wealth. Uh, you know, communication determines um, how well you're going to be able to ask those questions and, and, and how well you'll be able to move people uh, for their own benefit. So, um, really. Well, Jerry, I would add this there's the skill of communication, and then there's the state that one is in when one communicates. Mm-hmm. And the state is that's at level two, can't be seen, it's only felt. And in that state, in the field of influence, you know, that emotional influence process is so fundamentally key that my biggest responsibility, like to your listeners, my biggest responsibility to my patients and anyone I coach, and in fact, to everyone that I may come, my family members, is to manage my state in such a way that I reduce my anxiety, relatively non-anxious, and very open. That state is an open invitation for others to come with me. Come with me. Let me show you what I see. Come with me. And that's why managing that state and combining very, very up-to-date communication skills can make for a very, very successful and really delightful, <laughs> prosperous dental practice. Right. Which is what we're all after. That's what we're all Amen. after. Amen. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Well, Brian, how can um, – I know we're going to have some folks that are interested in communicating with you, whether it's for coaching, whether it's for um, learning more about what you, what you offer, the dental professional – um, what's the best way for people to reach you and to read more about you, learn more about you? How would they go about doing that? Well, you certainly can go to my website, www.brianderoche.com, or give me a call at 206-323-6114. Um, I usually, you know, usually try to answer within 48 hours and, uh, and get back to people because the process is very outcome-driven. Uh, I'm very curious about what do people want differently? What, you know, if a dentist calls me, what do you want to experience differently in your practice, in your life, whatever? What is the difference that you want? And it's not the absence of a negative, which only strengthens the negative. It's the presence of a positive. And what are the positive differences? Those are the hardest ones to define, the positive difference, but they're the most important. The most they are. Important. They're, um, they're, like you said, they used the term squishy earlier, I think. Um, it's leadership and management. Leadership is squishy. It, it's just a topic that's hard to pin down what it means exactly, yeah. and I think it's it's more yeah. through demonstration than it is anything else. Yeah. But um, but uh, and I apologize earlier for mispronouncing your name. Um, oh, Roche, no problem. Right? Is that no, no, yes, yes, yeah, yeah, no problem. I've heard it all kinds of ways. Mexican <laughs> restaurant is Zaluchas, so it's you know. <laughs> 
Well, um, it's been a real pleasure, and I'd, I'd remind our listeners Thank you. you can you can find yeah. uh, Dr. Brian on the on the internet or the interwebs at b r i a n d e s r o c h e s dot com, and um, it's just been a pleasure. Um, and it's thank you. Mine too. Thank you, Jerry. I really appreciate it. Tight, um, I'm sorry. What was that? Look forward to meet you in personally someday. Well, that would be fantastic. Yeah, hang tight, Doc, and um, I'm I'm gonna end the recording. And and for everybody here on our on our monthly call, thank you so much for listening in and being a subscriber. And we'll catch you all soon on the next time. Thank you. Bye, bye, Jerry.